Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. You know, uh, each Sunday when I leave the studio, I promise myself that the following weekend I'm not going to do anything at all about Justin Trudeau. Each Sunday I promise myself we're going to be able to get through the weekend without doing a Trudeau story. And each Saturday when I get back into the studio, there's no way that we can't do a Trudeau story because he makes it impossible to not do the story. Mr. Trudeau was in Edmonton on Thursday for another of his town halls. He gets upset when people heckle him. I would have thought he'd be used to it in question period. But anyway. You're listening to Edmonton The Roy Green Show. Thursday, heard weekends from 2 to 5 town on hall, 900 and, uh, asked him this. I was prepared to be killed in action. What I wasn't prepared for, Mr. Prime Minister. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Good weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. So there's an emotional, eloquent point from somebody, from a veteran who decided to be willing to sacrifice everything, wear the Canadian military uniform, go to war, and he lost a leg. Point that he made to the Prime Minister. Now here's the erudite leader of Canada replying. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups in court? Uh, Because uh, they are asking for more than we are able to give right now. Um, They are asking for more than we... Well, no. Hang on. You're You're asking for honest answers. Yeah. We do that regularly. But there's the Prime Minister... And there's the response from the audience. So why are we still fighting certain veterans groups in court because they're asking for more than we're able to give them right now? What kind of statement is that from a prime minister who's spending millions to reintegrate ISIS terrorists into Canadian society, who delivers $10.5 million to Omar Khadr, who signs off on huge bills like when he took the largest national delegation to Paris for the climate summit, who went to the United Nations and grandly announced Canada is back before committing $2.6 billion to that suspect global body. Why are we still fighting certain veterans groups in court? Can we play that again? Let's play the Trudeau clip again, please. I want to hear what he... Have our listeners hear it again. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups in court? Uh, Because uh, they're asking for more than we are able to give right now. Um, They are asking for more than we... Well, no. Hang on. You're You're asking for honest answers. So the veterans group that Trudeau was referencing was the Equitas Society and the Equitas lawsuit, which has been underway in Vancouver, and the B.C. Court of Appeal decided some weeks ago that the lawsuit didn't have merit and they shut it down except for the fact that the Equitas Society is now petitioning the Supreme Court of Canada to hear the case. Joining me on the program is Don Sorokin. He is the lawyer for the Equitas Society. Don, it's good to talk to you. Yes, nice talking to you again. Major Mark Campbell, member of the PPCLI, who lost both legs to an IED attack in Afghanistan, joins us from Edmonton. Um, Major Campbell, I don't even, I don't like to talk about the, I don't like to mention your injury. I think we need to talk to you as a person who went through hell. But at the same time, I don't think we can forget what it is that you 
suffered, nor should we allow the prime minister of this country to forget. Major, when you heard when you heard what the, the, the question from the veteran, wounded veteran from Afghanistan, and you hear the mm-hmm. reply from the prime minister, what's your reaction? Well, quite frankly, Roy, I was, uh, I was disgusted, but well, I was not surprised. Um, if, if anything, the prime minister did, us, did do us one favor, and that was that he was finally honest. Somebody from the Canadian government, after 10 years of denial, finally admitted that it's all about the money. The new Veterans Charter, all about saving money on the backs of our disabled veterans, always has been, always will be. Despite the denials, despite ministers standing up in front of the Canadian people, Jean-Pierre Blackburn, and denying the new Veterans Charter had anything to do with money, at the end of the day, it's all about money. You know, nobody asked me um, if I was prepared to curb my um, willingness to sacrifice. I never asked myself if potentially losing my legs was a price too high in the service of Canada. So I don't know what the Prime Minister's problem is paying the butcher's bill on the back end of the war that the government of Canada entered into. That's what he did, didn't he? Mm-hmm. That's what he did. He, yeah, the checks come, and he's walked away from the table. Yeah. Don, uh, you were in that courtroom every day, and you made the case for the, for the class action suit for the Equitas Society veterans. You hear the prime minister say, why are we still fighting certain veterans groups in court? Because they're asking for more than we can able to give right now. What's your response? Well, he's, he's suggesting they're being greedy. And this goes back to one of the grounds of appeal that we're taking to the Supreme Court of Canada because they're treating the claim for compensation as a benefit. It's actually compensation for things that are deprivation. Mark lost his legs. He lost other parts of his body that most of us uh, didn't lose because we weren't fighting for Canada. In addition, there's legal deprivations. Dan Scott was the victim of, uh, one of our lead plaintiffs, was the victim of an act that has been found by the courts to have been criminally negligent. He is deprived of his right to sue for that by virtue of the statute. And and yet somehow this is treated as if uh, it's uh, a, a question of what benefits out of the goodness of their heart can be given by the government and its bureaucrats. And I put the bureaucrats in there because even when you get well-meaning ministers announcing good policies, by the time the bureaucrats get finished with it, it's almost impossible to get the money into the hands of the veterans. Mm -hmm. What I heard Trudeau say was there is no social covenant between the government of Canada and the veterans and the members of the the CAF. There is, I heard him say there's no social covenant. Well, Well, you uh, you had a clip on your show last week where he said there is a sacred obligation which is the same thing as the social covenant. Right. So I, I, I don't know how you turn a, a social well, covenant. Well, and this is the problem, uh, Don, and, and, and uh, this, is, this, is, this is the problem. And Roy, he, the Prime Minister is talking out both sides of his mouth. Yeah. On the one hand, he references the sacred obligation, which I don't believe he, he actually understands what he's talking about, but he parrots the sacred obligation on the one hand, and on the other hand, he says that we have no money to pay for it. Well, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you can't... We can't have one without the other. Yeah, Don, I've learned to uh, I've learned to take it quote by quote. What the you prime minister what? says, I've learned to take it quote by quote. I, I try. Well, and, the, I, I can't go back to what he said last week because God knows well, what he would have said in the interim. The, the, 
Court of Appeal fundamental error was to deny the existence of the social covenant, which is very strange because it's not any doubt about it. It didn't apply just to Prime Minister Borden's speech in Canada. It applied to King George V's speech in England. It applied to uh, premier speeches all across Canada. It applied to leading politicians in throughout the British Empire because they had to raise a citizen's army. And to do that, you had to promise to look after people that are maimed for their country and for the families of those that are killed. It's no, it, 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 there's no doubt there, was, there is a social covenant. But the bureaucrats in government have done everything possible, not only in Canada, but throughout the Commonwealth, to keep it from being entrenched. Because it, if it is entrenched, then they can't do what bureaucrats always want to do, and that's whatever they want to do. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Steve sends an email to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. No money for Vets Roy, yet federal government has $7 million for a temporary skating rink that no one uses. Don Sorokin is the lawyer for the Equitas Society in British Columbia, challenging the federal government to step up and properly support military veterans, and particularly wounded veterans, the wounded veterans in the uh, in the case, and Major Mark Campbell, PPCLI, is one of the the soldiers involved in the uh, in the lawsuit. What uh, what what's the appeal to the Supreme Court based on Don? In two or three sentences, what are you asking the court? Well, we're asking the court to recognize that there is a social covenant, and that it's enforceable in the same manner in which. The honor, through the honor of the crown, which is available to Aboriginals, to support their claims under what was called the Royal Proclamation. So we've got a constitutional basis for uh, the need for a citizen's army. It flows back to 1689, and we say that even if it isn't written down in a statute, the social covenant is enforceable by the honor of the crown. The uh, federal government's lawyers deny the existence of the social covenant legally. And they also deny that uh, the uh, honor of the crown concept is available to anything but First Nations. Major Campbell, the uh, the Prime Minister argues that things are much better for veterans, that there's an option for a lifetime pension. And, and I guess you're just the inveterate complainers. Uh, he, he argues the monthly pension amount from his government is less than it was than was available before, which I think maxed out at 2700 per month, mm-hmm. and his government's is $1,150, but he says what you failed to uh, take into account is that his government offers many other costly services to veterans like PTSD treatment. Sure, Roy, and uh, I'll address that. The fact of the matter is, uh, aside from medical treatment, um, all of these other services that he alludes to, which most of which are geared around um, return-to-work programs and and establishing a, a second career um, as a civilian, um, they're, they're geared towards the moderately to minorly disabled. All of these expensive uh, or allegedly expensive other benefits which are uh, available under the new Veterans Charter are also available to those under the Pension Act. So that's that to, to, to say that that is not the case is disingenuous in the extreme. But uh, to get back to the question, um, the fact of the matter is Um, most of those services are of no use to the seriously disabled. So to say that you have to factor in the value of services like job-finding services or resume-writing services or or job placement programs 
Well, that's all well and dandy if you can take advantage of those programs like vocational rehabilitation. But if you're sufficiently so, so, so sufficiently disabled that you can't establish yourself in a second career uh, with gainful and, uh, gainful and meaningful employment and purpose, then all of those services mean nothing, and the dollar value to the seriously disabled is zero. Which again proves the point that to the Prime Minister and to the government, it's all about money. It's all about the bottom line. That's all they care about is how much money do we have to spend on these people because we don't want to spend any more than we have to spend on them. And Don, I find it really disturbing, extremely disturbing that we live in a country where not we don't thank our veterans for the sacrifice, not enough, thank our veterans for the sacrifice they make for the rest of us. But now then we, we have two successive federal governments that fight them in court about fairness. They've already lost this clawback battle. What they're basically saying is we are going to give up with the one hand, and this is a favorite trick of the bureaucrats in that ministry. They want to claw it back with the other hand. And they tried to do that with the CISA lawsuit with Mr. Manoog, and it went to the Supreme Court of Canada and went back to court, and the judgment of the court was your clawback is illegal, you can't do it, and pay back the $880 million that you tried to rip off veterans. So that clawback issue has already been decided as being inappropriate. It's As Mark says, it's disingenuous to say, oh, we've got all sorts of benefits. They aren't benefits in this case. They are compensation for deprivation. It's not as if you're getting paid a family allowance check that you don't need and they claw it back in your income tax. These are payments for serious injuries. If the prime minister had stood up in the meeting and said they're getting more than they deserve, we would have some tangible way to rebut that. We'd be able to point to what you can get in the civil courts, what you can get in uh, workers' compensation. But when he says something as nebulous as it's more than we can afford, how can you argue with that without analyzing the entire government budget? Well, it's like it's like saying we're going to give you more. Well, I tell you what, a dollar is more, but a dollar makes no difference in the long term to your family's financial security. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I semantics are, 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 are a mug's game in this case. And I was thinking about what you said as well, Major Campbell, and that is that to the, to the uh, veteran who is disabled after the war, all of these promises or all of these lists of opportunities that he trots out, which are not really opportunities, but he trots them out, means nothing to, 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 uh, to so many veterans. It, it, it's not an assist at all. No. No, exactly. If you can't take advantage of a benefit, the benefit doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah, it's so precisely. disturbing. It is so, it's so deeply troubling that a veteran would stand up in Edmonton, make his way to that town hall, stand up with a, with, with a leg lost, make his statement to the prime minister that he was ready to die for Canada. And what's the response from Justin Trudeau? Well, we can't afford to, uh, we can't afford to ad- adequately compensate you for your sacrifice on behalf of Canada. And I can tell you, Brock Blaschuk didn't pause in the, in the middle of battle when the bullets were flying and saying, hmm, maybe the cost of this is too high. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I Income tax time is rolling around. Maybe I'm thinking, hmm, I can't afford what these guys are asking for. Yeah. You know, um, you know, what's fair for the goose or good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, and, it, and it's ridiculous. Uh, enough's enough. Canadians right. need to stand up and say to their government, enough is clearly enough.
Enough is enough. Stop Major, playing political games. Major Campbell, thank you so much for the time. Don, thank you so much for your time and for everything you do for the veterans and the Equitas uh, Society. Thank you for readdressing this important issue. All right, gentlemen, thanks so much. We'll, we'll be back in touch with you, no doubt. So the Supreme, Court of, the Supreme Court of Canada should be the, uh, the next court that hears this case and hopefully will respond appropriately to the... Um, to the request, to the to the call by the Equitas Society. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. My good friend Joe Warmington joins us from the Toronto Sun. Later on in the half hour, we'll talk to uh, Simon Little from CKNW Radio in Vancouver about the liberal leadership that's going to come up with a new liberal leader for the province of Ontario later on, uh, province of British Columbia, later on uh, today. The Ontario leadership for the Conservative Party is coming up in uh, in a matter of weeks, and we'll have Doug Ford and Christine Elliott, the two who have most recently, or the two first two, to to uh, declare their running for the leadership. They'll join us tomorrow on the show. Joe Warmington joins me. We've been friends for a long time. We've covered a lot of stories. I'm a big fan of yours, and you've had a run of stories recently, Joe, that's just incredible. Well, you know, obviously, we kind of reflect what's going on, and society and um, if you're going to get on the Roy Green show it's going to be on a big story oh, and thank in this you. case it's uh, you know there's many big stories and they're not all good news they're not good news but they're not all good news but they certainly uh, have people's attention and they require the kind of coverage that you're giving them and the, 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 let's start with Honey and, and uh, Barry Sherman and what you've written about them and uh, Mr. Sherman's cousin Kerry Winter and uh, and where he fits into all of this yeah, it's one of the strangest things I've ever seen. I mean, we knew that he was out there, and uh, it was very interesting because we didn't really hear from him while the police were going on the idea that it was a murder-suicide over there on Old Colony Road. For those listening across the country, it's sort of up by kind of Bayview and Highway 400. It's a, a posh area, very quiet, and obviously people know the story. And out of nowhere, uh, once within the weeks uh, since the police have decided that it's a double homicide, uh, this guy, uh, Kerry, has been doing interviews. He did some, obviously, with CBC's Fifth Estate, which was in the can. And I guess he couldn't help himself. He got on over there with the Daily Mail and obviously with uh, Kevin Donovan at the Toronto Star and with us at the Sun. So, he's And he's, jo- he's joining me tomorrow. And he's joining you tomorrow. Yeah. So. So it's, you know, and, and the story that he's telling is something that I have probably never seen before, where it's almost like he wants to be arrested for this. If it was a TV show, he'd be the first person that you would look to. I mean, he's talking about fantasizing killing these people. And obviously the story that he's trying to spend that he, you know, the Barry Sherman had talked to him about putting a hitman on his wife and all these kinds of things. And yet when you talk to him, you'll find him an engaging person. Um, in my case, um, you know, I, for some reason, I guess I'm a sucker for, for people that are troubled. I, I think that he might need some help, and I, you know, I have some compassion for him. I hope he didn't do any of these things, and I hope that it's, uh, you know, some other explanation for all the things he's saying. But the police have got this file, and, you know, if he's involved in it or not involved in it, I'm sure they'll let us know. So there was a billion-dollar lawsuit by some cousins of Mr. Sherman against him, uh, and uh, it had to do with the with uh, the business, and we won't get into all the details. But it was a billion dollar lawsuit. Mr. Sherman won. Well, the lawsuit stems from his father, yeah. who was Lou Winter, who who was the one that hired 
Barry Sherman in the first place to come into his business when he was just a teenager. Right. And that was called Empire Labs. Empire Labs uh, eventually, you know, through all kinds of uh, different methods, became what we now know as Apotex. I apologize for the beeping here. I'm in a Home Depot trying to get a nice quiet spot, and I haven't been able to find it. Anyway, That's all right, so basically what's happened here is that his father died, and very soon after, within weeks, his mother died. And, you know, they've got this guy that turned, ended up buying the company, which is Barry Sherman, Dr. Sherman. He sort of, they sort of reconnected, and he ended up taking care of these brothers and uh, to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. And uh, I guess at some point, uh, this company, they, these guys found out that it said in his father's will or something that showed that they were supposed to get a piece of this company. So they tried to sue for it. And so it's a very, you know, it is a compelling story. The judge threw it out and said something along the lines of, you wish. Um, it just sounds, you know, one of these things. But I sort of see his point of view, although Barry Sherman was very generous with these people. They were very irresponsible with their, their life choices. I mean, some of them. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know. If, if life's only about money, then that's one thing. But it's got to be about more than that. And, you know, these people are dead. Somebody did kill them according to the police. And he's spinning out, you know, Kerry, and he'll be on the show with you. Uh, and I'll be listening to that because we're all listening to everything he says. Because right now, all focus is on him. Yeah, and he claims it was uh, a murder-suicide. He still insists that. And was he not, uh, he was also involved in a, in, a, in a lie detector test. Yeah, you know, and, he, and when he, you talk to him, he'll tell you, I mean, those things, uh, I mean, I thought the report about Bob McKeown was terrific, and it was uh, very well done on, on uh, Fifth Estate. Very, such a pro. But the, the, the lie detector test, they had to give it to him, but those things are very tricky, and you know that mm-hmm. role yourself. Yeah, I mean, yeah. through the years, every time you're dealing with a lie detector test, it's never admissible in court, and you can make them go any which way you want. Uh, this guy tells stories, he changes his stories. He doesn't know for sure what he's saying. The only reason that he's going to be on your show and the reason he talked to me and everybody else is because there's nobody else that's talking about hating Honey and Barry Sherman at a time when the police are looking for a killer for mm-hmm. those people. Okay. Uh, talk to us about Bruce MacArthur, suspected serial killer of gay men facing five charges of murder. And uh, please remind us about what it was that brought attention to MacArthur. Well, you and I have talked about this case in, uh, about five years ago. We talked about missing people. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but uh, it was something that was you know, pulling at you. I forget the case. It was about a young woman, but we talked about the men that were missing as well. Yeah. And, and, and so here we are all these years later. There was a thing called Project Houston, and uh, that was the, the one that was five or six years ago when we talked about it. And then, of course, then came the, the next one they, later. That one closed down. They never got it. But I think MacArthur was talked to, or at least on the radar then. And, you know, he's a 66-year-old guy who, you know, hung around the village. Um, there, there was a period of time where he was uh, in trouble for violence domestic kind of violence and or you know towards somebody assault that kind of thing and he was told to stay away from the village there's a lot of clues on this guy and uh again as it unraveled you know once you turn over that one stone and see something then it unravels but he was able to keep this going for a long time and so because of that roy we don't know how many we're going to end up with and it's already five too many yeah and the the was it uh, the last one that uh, was found a man was tied to his bed? 
Yeah, that was a story that Sam Pizzano and I, uh, you know, did. And basically what happened was that they had him under surveillance. And, you know, there's different accounts of this. And in court, we'll find out at some, some point exactly what did happen because no one's really confirming it. But we've got police sources that do confirm that something like this happened. There was a male in the apartment tied either to the bed or on the bed. And the, you know, the special team that was kind of surveilling him realized they had to move in. They weren't ready to arrest him yet, but they had to go in and protect whoever this was. And uh, they kicked the door down and they, they arrested MacArthur. But you know what? Um, this guy, we don't know. There is a kind of a rough, you know, trade out there that, that MacArthur was purchasing or renting, that kind of thing. So I'm not sure whether this guy for sure was at risk. But I'll tell you something. When they told him that, you know, that he was in tied up with a serial killer and he didn't sleep very well that night. No, I don't imagine. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for spending the time with us and, uh, and yeah, Roy, bringing us good, up to date. Good. Yeah, good to be with you. I'll listen to your interview with uh, Kerry Winter tomorrow. And, and also, great show today. I was listening, but I felt kind of bad for Don, too, the, the guy that called in. And he wants to email me with his story. We'll do it. I'm sure you'll have him on as well one day. Yeah, Thanks we will. For all the service uh, that people, uh, you know, that you mentioned. That, I think that's the one thing that I got from your last segment was, you know, all you have to do is thank those men and women for what they did for us. And if the Prime Minister needs to be reminded of that, we'll do that for him. Well, the terrible thing, uh, among other things, that was involved with the Prime Minister's answer in Edmonton was that he didn't thank that veteran for his service. That's what I, yeah, that's what I was just getting at. I think that's really, really too bad. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is when you say to those people, we don't have enough money, that's not what you ever say to people that strap on the uniform and go to war for your country. You never say that money is not part of what you talk about, and so that was very naive of the prime minister, and it's also wrong. And the other thing too is we have lots of money. He just gave Bono a hundred and you know, I forget what the figure, one hundred eighty million dollars to that one foundation. Bono was here uh, from U two on Canada Day singing over there, and they said it was for free, but it wasn't for free. I didn't know what it was for. Now I know. So that you know that he gets this money. Well, that hundred eighty million dollars, I'll take it for the guy that, that you had, you know, the clip you played. And all the other men and women who served, um, you know, the, there's lots of money for those people, and it's not right what he said. He owes an apology. He's not doing very well. I mean, there's a lot of things. Look, at. I like the guy, some of his act, as you know, it's nice that, that he's popular around the world, and all, there's positives. But your core job is to look after the people here, and he's not doing that. Well said, Joe. Well said. Thanks for the time. I'll talk to you real soon. All the best. Thanks. All the best, Joe. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. One of the great writers, one of the great columnists, and he's a truth teller. The story about uh, Barry and Honey Sherman is uh, is a rather unusual one. Kerry Winter is uh, the cousin of Mr. Sherman, who will be joining us on this program tomorrow. And uh, he insists that uh, it was a murder-suicide, and police are saying it was a double murder. Mr. Winter's been talking to Toronto police, so we'll talk to him tomorrow. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Since I've been talking about chronic pain and chronic pain patients and doing what most other people in media are not doing, and that is covering the side of the patients, I've been getting a lot of response. And a lot of it has come from the United States, from Americans who are going through what exactly Canadians are going through, and that is struggling with horrific pain 24-7 with their opioid medications denied them increasingly by governments and the medical profession. 
The medication is there. It's easily given to these patients who in most cases, certainly the ones I've spoken to, have taken the medication for years without any issues, without any side effects, without any problems, without any medication getting away from them. It simply made life livable. But now their medications are being taken away. And they're being accused of being addicts. It's got nothing to do with the patients. It has everything to do with generic addicts. But it is the chronic pain patients who are being harmed and who are being damaged. And what it is is systemic cruelty that is indifferent to borders, whether one has a wall or not. I spoke with Dr. Fiona Campbell from Toronto about a year ago. She's an anesthetist at SickKids Hospital in Toronto. And she's a big player on the national scene on pain management issues. Dr. Campbell said there are four stages in chronic agony. The first one is the pain. The second one is social isolation. The third one is depression. And the fourth one is suicide. And doctors have told me that more and more, or increasingly, patients are committing suicide when their medications are being taken away or not being dispensed as they had been previously. So I had to say that. But now let me introduce you to Desiree and Dave. They are in the United States. And uh, I received an email from Desiree, and uh, the words please contact me, were in the email, so I called. And I found a 36-year-old wife and mother of three, a former athlete, who is now a victim of brutal nonstop chronic pain. Desiree, thank you for, uh, thank you for getting in touch, and you're a very brave lady. Thank you. Dave, uh, you and I haven't spoken, uh, but your wife has told me about what a tremendous support you are to her. Uh, it must be... It's so incredibly difficult for you to see, witness what she's going through, and knowing that the medication is there to help her, it's just not being provided. Yeah, it's it's more difficult than you would imagine. It's it's difficult knowing that there's something out there that can help, even if it hurts her in the long run, just a quality of life in the short run. Desiree, tell us your story, please. What is it that you're you're living with? What is what are your days like? Um, well, uh, seven years ago, I was diagnosed with CRPS, chronic regional pain syndrome, and about three years ago, I was also diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, it's honestly, it's it's very hard to describe. It's not like a cut on your arm where it just it hurts and it bleeds and you know what's going on. Um, some days it's a stabbing pain. Um, some days it's just feeling like it's like your your bones are hurting from the inside out. Um, it's every day is something different. It jumps from one area to another, and just when you're in pain all the time it literally, it just starts to make you completely crazy. And you spend most of your day in bed because that's the only place you can get any sense of relief. 
Well, there is there's definitely no relief. Um, day in and day out, I'm flopping all over the bed, moving, trying to find a comfortable position. And what are your doctors telling you? What are they? What are they telling you? They, you were you were prescribed opioids, and they were helping you. They were providing you some some quality of life from our conversation, and now they've been uh, very significantly reduced, and with the intent to get you off them, and uh, and and it's having this effect on you, where you're living in constant agony. What are your doctors telling you about what what you should be doing? Is there any compassion out there for you? Um, there is some compassion, mostly. Is- it's from the doctors of, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. They say to use heating pads. They say to try vitamins. They say to try injections. Um, just a list of things that have not worked very well. And if you were given your old prescription of opioid pain medication, if that was returned to you, what would your life be like? Um, well, like I said, I've been diagnosed for seven years, and for seven years I have been on them, and I've continued to live my life. There's been some things that I have not been able to do since, you know, being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I still was able to live some sort of a life. Um, I could still go for for walks. I could still, you know, do small hikes, um, things like that. Definitely not to the ability of what I did seven years ago. But you were able to do some things. What can you? Uh, can you? I guess you can't play with your kids physically. Can't do physical games with them. Uh, not at the moment. I I was able to do that uh, seven years ago, or within the seven years of being on the pain medication. Um, my kids are in sports. I was still able to go to their games. I was still able to take my kids to the park. Um, take him for a bike ride, things like that, all of which things I am no longer able to do. So you told me, and this is the, the really difficult part, you told me that you had decided that you were going to end your life because you cannot live with this level of pain. And you said you'd, you'd made that made that decision. If, it, if the situation with the medication doesn't change, if you're not given the medication that allows you to live, at least to a certain degree with pain that is manageable, that you cannot manage to live with that pain. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's been really hard. Um, some days is um, some days is not as bad pain. Um, on the high pain days, I pretty much literally just sit in the bed and cry for six to eight hours. Oh. You know, we've tried everything to relieve the pain. The pain gets to be too much, and I have mental breakdowns um, because the pain just it doesn't go away. It doesn't ease up. Um, and when I get in those state of mind, you know, I, I try to reach out and I talk to my husband and my family, but it gets to the point where I just feel like I cannot do it. Um, I have a five-year-old and she'll run and jump up on the bed and I'll just burst into tears because just the vibration of her jumping on the bed just shoots pain through my leg and my wrist. It just, it becomes too much and it's definitely not the end result that I would ever, ever want. I love my children, everything I have, but I feel like I'm a burden to my family. I feel like 
I can't get off the bed. I can't even get up half the time to make my child food. Having my children watch me in this kind of pain, it's just, it's horrible. You know what is also horrible is the fact that doctors know you're going through this. They know of the thoughts you've had about the fact that you cannot continue like this. And uh, nobody anywhere is willing to provide you what is readily available and uh, would relieve the pain. They're just telling you, too bad. Try this, try this, try that, try something else. Take a hot bath, uh, do something, you know, a massage, whatever. None of that's going to help. None of that's going to do it for you. So they're... Yeah. And the frustrating part is that for seven years I've been on something that has helped me to continue my life. And then they take me off to put me on something else that has horrible side effects that makes me sick. Um, They put me on a fentanyl patch, which was horrible. I was hallucinating. I couldn't stay awake. I was in a bed for 20 hours. And when I would tell them that it wasn't helping, then they just would say, well, that's too bad. You, You have to do this. Like, they don't listen. Yeah. Dave, when you hear your wife, uh, and you know better than anyone else what she's going through, other than Desiree, but when you hear her talking about this and explaining what's happening to her, what do you want to say to the people who have the option and have the opportunity to provide the assistance to her and to millions of other people who are in terribly difficult straits because the medication they used successfully for years has just been taken away arbitrarily because too many people in government and too many people in the medical profession are either parrots or they're afraid. What do you want to say to them? Well, quite frankly, I tell them that I would like to be able to tell all these doctors that I should be a better doctor than them because I didn't go through the hard work. I didn't go through all the hoops that are necessary to jump through to become a doctor. But I'm just as... I'm just exactly the same as they are, just like they treat my wife and an addict on the street. We jump through hoops. Nobody knows that chronic pain patients have to do UAs. They have to be questioned constantly about how they're taking their pills. And we have to do it by the book or they drop you like a sack of potatoes. And druggies off the street can go buy them off of whoever they want. They can steal them from your grandma. They can steal them from wherever and... You know, even in Oregon, they've decriminalized possession of um, narcotics. And it's quite frankly getting very aggravating that these people can go out and just party it up, have a good time, be zoned out on the side of the road. Nobody cares. But the first thing they do when those people start dying is they come after people like my wife and my mother and my other family members who have similar conditions. I would like to ask your listeners your listeners to also stop being so shy about your chronic pain. You don't have to scream it from the rooftops, but talk to your family and friends. Keep them close to you because I know a lot of people who have this, and I know they're very shy about it, and they feel it's a disability, and they don't like to talk about it. And I think that's part of the reason is everybody can see the the druggies on the side of the road, but most people, they suffer in, in quiet, and they don't let their voices be heard, and they become meek as part of the conditions and some of the mental side. Yeah. But I'll tell you one thing. The worst thing is, is seeing what, a pain, what pain can do to a person. 
my wife, when she is having a very bad pain day and she's having her mental breakdowns, there's she's not even the same person. It, she's still in there, but at the same time, she talks dark, and it's it's not something that you really want to be a part of. And here you are, you're being uh, lectured by people who have no idea, no concept of what it is that your wife is going through or you're going through. And we have the cynical reality in this country where the federal government and the medical profession held a crisis uh, uh, conference on, uh, on pain and on pain meds, and the only people who weren't invited were patients and their doctors. So don't uh, try to tell me there's no agenda. Desiree, Dave, I, I've given you a couple of uh, leads for people to get in touch with in the United States. I've asked them also to get in touch with you. Uh, I don't know. I think I don't know what they can do for you, but I'm going to call you. Uh, I'm going to call you in a couple of days, and we'll just see what's happened as far as that is concerned. Uh, wish you. I, I, this is so empty, but I wish you the very best, and we're just going to keep fighting for you. Thank you. We appreciate it, and we're definitely very appreciative of all the help you have given within this last week. Um, they have contacted me, and they are helping me. And oh, good. We just we very much appreciate everything that you've done for us. Well, it's my pleasure, and I'm so glad they got in touch with you. I'll, I'll call you in a couple of days, guys, all right? All right. Thank you so much. Take thank care. you. Have a wonderful afternoon. You guys get care. Uh, Desiree and Dave, they're in the United States. There's their story. Next time you hear about uh, cutting off uh, uh, pain meds and cutting off opioids for pain patients, think about what you just heard. Think about what you've heard previously. Too many politicians are blind and deaf and dumb on this issue, or they just parrot what somebody else tells them to say. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Marquita Collius of Surrey, British Columbia, lost her 22-year-old daughter to a drunk driver who served very little time in prison, standard operating procedure for Canadian justice system. She formed the National Families for Justice Organization, and uh, Mrs. Collius, with Alberta Conservative Member of Parliament Michael Cooper, has launched a national petition drive demanding tougher sentencing for anyone who drives drunk and kills. Marquita, it's good to speak with you again. It's, it's been a while, and I know you've remained active and you've done a tremendous amount of good fighting for true justice for people who become victims of drunk drivers. Thank you, Roy. I, I appreciate you having me on this afternoon. You know, I've, I've been fighting for this for almost seven years now, asking the government to make changes to the impaired driving laws and the sentencing laws, because sadly in our courts, impaired driving is still considered an accident. And, you know, there's nothing about it that's an accident. It's a, a willful choice to, to get behind the wheel and right. drive, you know, while being impaired. And we are losing thousands of innocent Canadians um, to impaired driving deaths and thousands more who are being injured. Tell us about the petition, please. Um, the petition was brought forward by uh, Conservative MP Michael Cooper, and it's called When a Drunk Driver Kills. And we have been asking the government to implement mandatory minimum sentencing when someone is convicted of impaired driving causing a death. Um, some of the sentences that we have seen are, you know, one day in jail, 90 days to be served on weekends, $1,500 fines, and those are for fatalities. And we believe that, you know, if someone goes out and kills an innocent person, they should be held accountable uh, for the crime and an appropriate sentence 
should be given out based on the severity of the crime. Absolutely. What's so, the uh, What's the petition number? Where is it found online? It, it's uh, you can find it on. Um, you can just Google it. It's uh, petition E thirteen twenty seven. It's also on Mr. Cooper's uh, website and also on our Families for Justice Facebook page. And people, uh, it, this online petition is only online until February twentieth. Mm-hmm. And we ask the Canadian public to please. You know, go read on it, and please, if you believe that there should be tougher sentences yeah. when someone is killed, then please sign this. It is the only opportunity that Canadians have to have a voice and say that the laws need to change, and Mr. we need the public support on this. Yeah. Mr. Cooper, let's hear from you. Yes, well, uh, thank you, Roy, and uh, uh, hi, Marquita. Um, this uh, petition arises uh, from uh, the need for change to hold individuals who make the conscious choice to drink and then drive to be held uh, accountable for the seriousness of that crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks to the work uh, of Marquita uh, and the petition that she launched in 2011, more than 100,000 Canadians called on the government to act by, among other things, imposing mandatory sentences. Right. Our previous Conservative government responded by introducing bill c73 which would have provided for i'm going to ask you to bring it i'm going to ask you to bring it forward mr yeah. cooper i went a little long on the last segment we have little time but uh this this petition and marquita will talk about it again it's e1327 right yes it is that's yes. correct when a drunk driver kills and you can google that as well and you can find it on the website of families for justice yeah on our facebook page yes my facebook page as well what are you going to do tell me in about 10 seconds mr cooper what are you doing in parliament well, we're trying to push amendments to Bill C-46, which is the government's impaired driving legislation, to include mandatory sentences so that impaired drivers who kill get can't get any longer get away with a slap okay. on the wrist. Great. It's time. Marquita, you've done tremendous work in living with, with great difficulty in, in a very painful situation. We will stay in touch. E-1327, Young Drivers Who Kill. Thank you very much. Drunk Drivers Mark. Who Kill. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. It is Black History Month, and race and racial issues are at the core of a lot of the unrest that we find in this particular... It's a little early to say in 2018, but it's there, and it was there in 2017, and it seems to be at times just to be ramping up. We have the opportunity and the privilege to speak with Dr. Melba Patillo-Beals. She's an icon of the U.S. civil rights movement. And uh, she was one of nine African-American students who, in 1957, confronted by armed National Guard troops and the Arkansas governor, integrated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, Dr. Patillo-Beals' book is March Forward Girl, from Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, personal memories of early childhood and the hardships in the life of African Americans in the Jim Crow South. By the way, uh, Dr. Beale's book, Warriors Don't Cry, sold over a million copies. Dr. Beals, it's an honor to speak with you. My pleasure and blessing. Thank you. When you were a little girl in Arkansas, this is what people have to understand. You're a little girl in Arkansas in the 1940s. You feared the Ku Klux Klan, and you feared them because they were roaming the streets of your community almost nightly. Every night, 
my grandmother and mother would rush to the window and draw the shades, and uh, you'd, you'd tone down any radio you had on, and you'd, you'd close the doors, you'd pull anything off the front porch or anything out of the yard that looked as though you were doing something you shouldn't be doing or that you were happy or that you barbecued that day or anything that you it looked as though, you know, you might be uh, their enemy, you'd get off your property, baby, because you don't, you wouldn't want to face them. Yeah. And you'd pull your, sometimes people pull their street addresses in. Uh, you don't want any name on the mailbox. I mean, you know, there's all this stuff going on about preparing yourself to be, uh, well, actually invisible. That whole thing about being invisible as a as a, as an African American, invisibility brought life. And that's what you needed in the 1940s in the South. You needed life. You needed visibility. And here you were forced to be invisible. How old were you at the time? And what was the impression? What's the impression it makes on a little girl? I was born in 1941, and uh, when I was just turning four, I said to my mother, "Where did I come from?" And she said, uh, "You came from Stork." Stork delivered you, we're blessed. And so I said, look, to myself, you know, alrighty then. I took a red wagon, and I parked it out front, and I sat in it. And they said, what are you doing? It's hot out here, the sun's bearing down. I said, well, you know, if the stork delivered me, he's going to come back, and I'm going to flag a ride out of Little Rock. Because <laughs> I wanted to get Makes out sense. at any yeah. cost. Yeah. I knew at age three we were unwelcome. You know, there's this, uh, I wrote this book to explain this three or four sentences in, in Warriors Don't Cry, and it says this, black folks aren't born knowing they're second-class citizens. No one bends over the crib and says, hey, this is how you got to behave, and this is what you ain't going to get in this life. These are the opportunities you're going to miss, and you're going to be treated like poop because your skin is brown, you know. They're going to they gonna walk all over your blue suede shoes. Well... Instead, you learn this. Instead, your self-esteem is stolen teaspoon by teaspoon day by day. And that's what was happening to me. At three, my parents and I would go to the grocery store. And everything was cool as long as we were at home or go to church, right? But when we went to the grocery store, these honorable people whose shoulders were square, who were educated, who were bright and thoughtful and articulate, became absolute slaves. They would curtsy. They would have these humble looks on their faces. They would, yasa, no sir, no ma'am. They would, um, if you were standing in line paying for your groceries, let's say, and a white person walked up to you, you let them walk in front of you. There's, there's no such thing as gauging how long you're going to be at the grocery store because by the time everybody steps in front of you, it could be hours. And as a little girl, I wanted to come home to my dollies and my playthings. I didn't want to spend the morning trying to shop for meat, you know. And when you got to the, um, when we got to the meat counter, the guy said, well, uh, Miss India, well, you know, she likes fresh things. She's an uppity. Because my grandmother, you know, they were selling their stale meat, their rotting meat to black people, and the black people were accepting it. And uh, my grandmother said, no, that's not happening for me. That's not happening at all for me. I, um... We're not doing that. And so um, she was called an uppity. That, that put her in danger, no less. She was a white uh, maid in white leader's kitchen for all of my young life. When you were five, you, you mentioned that you were, I mean, you're describing a life that is, I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I'm trying to understand how, how you function. 
in a, in a, in a reality like that, I'd understand why you say you want to be invisible with that sort of thing going on. But when you, you said being in church was uh, maybe gave you a little bit of uh, security, but you also at five years of age, you witnessed the Klan hang a black man uh, right, in a lynching Harvey. in the church, correct? Mr. Harvey, and I remember uh, the thing I remember now, wake me up sometimes in the middle of the night when I'm having a bad dream, and it's over that because I remember his feet dangling in my face. I was five. I couldn't see his face because they had him uh, blindfolded. You know, they had his face covered. Um, And I saw his feet dangling, and I heard the awful growling, uh, pleading, begging, as they they were straddling him up, and then the growling in his throat as they were actually hanging him. No help from the law. And how absolutely pleading his voice was and, and what he said and how at the end of the plea he just began to say oh lord please you know uh, we were the, what do you mean help from the law no we i know something yeah. this is when i get, got pissed off because we were we were in church and probably all told there were 70 to 80 people of them, a lot of men in there right and none of those black people did anything cuz they know knew if they did they'd be next but it steamed me that there were five Klansmen around us, but there were 70 and 80 of them. So the first 10 die, let them die. But get them, you know, that's my attitude in life. Get it, get it, get it. And I don't know where all this came from as I analyzed who I was as a child, born December 7th, 1941. I was born on the day they bombed Pearl Harbor. I thought to myself all the while from the beginning, I thought, hey, I may die, baby. But you know what? You treat me like that, you go on down with me. And I don't even know, as I examine who I was, where all this spit and fire came from. But I was a different child. I was bright to begin with, quite brilliant. Although my mother was more brilliant. My brother had a genius IQ, joined later in her life to, uh, invited later in her life to join Minza. And she spoke six languages and was a teacher. My grandmother was just as bright. She read us Shakespeare all the time. She just had to clean people's kitchens and kowtow because at that point, uh, adult black women were not uh, especially educated. Dr. Beals, I have to... was educated because my grandmother decided to educate her. Now, I have to take a break. I want to ask you this question, though. There was, there was nothing there from the law to provide you with any, any security, any protection. It, was a just, it just wasn't there, right? Never. Uh-uh. The police are white, and probably they're in those uniforms in the day, but they're riding with the Klan at night. They're the same Klan coming to your front door. That's number one. And number two, uh, they, they don't, you know, you're not worth it. You're thought to be less than. And I can't say that every single white policeman in Little Rock thought that way, but enough of them thought that way that they could physically threaten those that didn't. Okay, let me, t- let, me, let me take a quick those break. Those who would dare to venture beyond, those who venture beyond, we'll get them. Yeah. Dr. Beals, I'll come right back to you. Dr. Melba Patillo Beals, she's a civil rights icon in the United States. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. I'm speaking with Dr. Patillo Beals, Dr. Melba Patillo Beals. She joins us from California, and her book is... March Forward Girl from Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine, Personal Memories of Early Childhood and the Hardships of Life in the Jim Crow South. 
Also, uh, Dr. Buell's book, Warriors Don't Cry, sold over a million copies. And uh, it's required reading in many colleges across the United States. Dr. Bills, 1957, you're integrating a high school where that was deemed to be, well, you tell me what it was deemed to be, but if I can back it up just a little bit, they were looking for volunteers to engage in this particular um, integrating of the high school. You volunteered for that. How did it go for you? What was the process? Well, first of all, they were sifting through the schools. In 1954, that decision demanded that schools integrate. Okay. And as a result of that, Central High School in Little Rock, in general, Arkansas decided the way we get away with this is we only start with one school, and we do only a few people with one school. And so, um, therefore, they were sifting through. They were looking for African-American kids who had good grades, who were obedient, who were generally, you know, people that could be handled. But the other thing was, as they were doing that, they also sent a team of people out, nurses, doctors, lawyers, whatever, to tell the black community to visit personally your home and say, look, you can go if you want to, but, you know, that's not going to work for you. We go take away your other stuff. So there were two things going on simultaneously. Ultimately, they came up with three, with 116 children who lived in that area who were willing to volunteer. Now, whether or not these children got frightened or they were threatened, we don't know to this day. But that 116 ended up going down to nine. Central High School was ranked as in the top 10 physical educational plants in the country. And many of the people who went there went to the Big Eight. So it wasn't just a, a, any old school. It was an academically adroit school to begin with. So that's how we got chosen to go. Mm-hmm. And when we got, when the woman walked through the room and said, if you want to go, and you live in the neighborhood, raise your hand, and here's a paper to have your parents sign. And I thought to myself, well, you know, hey, hey, baby cakes, I can, uh, I don't want to trouble my mother with that horrifying task. I'm going to sign my own. So I signed my own and turned it in. And, uh, you know, uh, okay, uh, that passed, and I, um, you know, went for a couple of years, and nothing happened. And then we were in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, in 1957. The summer I was actually 15, going to be 16 December 7, and uh, uh, there you go. Uh, they they heard over the television that these children were going to Central High School. So what was the reaction? What was the reaction? And my mother said, "That's your daughter." They're talking about. What was the reaction like in uh, in Little Rock? How did the people of Little Rock react to their high school being to that high school being integrated? Violently opposed to it. Uh, Bad telephone calls, rioting, guns, uh, whatever you want to do. I mean, it was being done. And when you went there on that particular day, nine of you. Are going to school was the governor there no but we don't you don't have to understand we were not heroes and heroes that day we didn't expect people to behave that way that day we knew they were violently against it but we we're children right i didn't expect no one of us thought you know these people are violent enough although i'd seen this man hanged in the church right we never knew why he was saying we thought oh geez he must have done something really awful you know point being 
none of our parents were bright enough to know that this was a dangerous, deadly act to take to put us in those schools, that everybody was going to suffer. Mm-hmm. They were going to suffer, and other black people were going to suffer. And so when we went there that day, in my case, there were a whole group of people there, and I was separated from the other eight. And I was standing in the back of a thick line of people, about eight deep, seven deep, something like that. And I, we were on tiptoes looking, the whole crowd was on the tiptoes looking across the street at this black, small black child, Elizabeth Eckford, would turn out to be one of our nine, who was being chased down by this mob. And uh, we thought, well, you know, let's go help her. And then we realized, look, we're in as much trouble as she is in. Because this guy turned around and said, hey, you know, and then he said, he said, we got us in We don't have to go across the street to hang somebody. And that was the beginning of our, uh, I would say, dramatic escape. We got home safely because my mother had been teaching me to drive. And I was running in front of her, and I jumped into the car. She jumped in, and I backed down the street faster than I had ever turned forward. And as I'm backing down, they're banging on the windshield and uh, pointing guns at me, ropes. Uh, Dr. Beals, I have about a minute left here. I'd love to talk to you longer than that, but we have about a minute left. When you look at the world today, are we any better off? Are we a lot better off? Let's put it that way. No question that we're better off. We're a lot better off than we were when I was a child. Uh, it has changed. Have we met the destination yet? Is this where we're going? Absolutely not. Until every single one of us is free, no matter what we look like or worship like, no matter what we eat, mm-hmm. no matter where we live, then none of us is free. Are we making progress properly? We are definitely making progress. Because I don't know any black people that are willing to go back to where we started. And that poses a huge problem. Because your next question must be, what are they willing to do not to go back? And so thereby, you, you, you find yourself in a position of understanding that these problems are solved with love, not with violence. Will you come back to the show? If you invite me. I will. Thank you. I most definitely will. Thank it's, you. And remember, love's the only answer. Nothing yep. is one with hatred and violence. Just love. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Beals. It's been a, an honor to speak with you. And I will invite you back. You do that, I appreciate it, and I will come. All right. All the best to you. Dr. Melba Patillo Beals. And uh, the book is March Forward Girl From Young Warrior to Little Rock Nine. It's an incredible, incredible story. And it's all real. You know, it's, it, it will open your eyes. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.